0: Welcome to the Limitless Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Roseland. This podcast will teach you to acquire superhuman mental abilities and hack your reality. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Corey Reddish, a naturopathic doctor, entrepreneur, and infamous enabler of people having a damn good time at Burning Man. We're going to be discussing 18 life hacks for rock solid self-control along with how to biohack the negative effects on our minds from consuming alcohol and even hard party drugs. Also, this episode includes a quick interview with Dr. Kelly Goldsmith, author of the landmark study on self control When Guilt Begets Pleasure, the Positive Effect of a Negative Emotion. I have a dark, unpleasant secret from my past to admit to you. I used to smoke. I wouldn't go buy a pack during the daytime, but I was one of those people who would smoke cigarettes socially. Once I got a couple of cocktails in me, I would be in the mood to light up. And I ended up smoking anywhere from two to five cigarettes a week. I did this for probably about five years. It was a super gross habit. It made me smell terrible. It made me feel terrible in the mornings after. I tell you this because this podcast is on life hacking self-control. And this episode will present 18 different very actionable life hacks for increasing your self-control and willpower. I managed to kick the habit of smoking cigarettes socially using about four of the self-control life hacks that you're going to hear about in the next hour or so of this po- this podcast. So if you smoke even just socially like I used to, I really encourage you to pay extra attention to this episode and listen to it as many times as you need to to quit smoking. If someone you care about smokes, you should definitely share this podcast with them because you want them to quit smoking. I'm sure they want to quit smoking and in the long term, it could ultimately save their life. We got a really good question recently from one of our listeners. Paul asked, where the hell do you start? I'd love to meet the person that listens to a couple podcasts, reads a few blog posts, and says, I'm down with this. And then does it, boom, implemented, I'm a new person. I don't see that happening for me or many people. So the question is, where the hell do we start? That is a really good question, Paul. On my site alone, we've got about 500 different articles and resources related to biohacking, and it can be a little bit overwhelming. So for people that are asking themselves that question, where to start, the new design of the homepage of the website really makes this pretty clear. On our site for people that choose to join our community, there's three resources that they get instant access to that I think are a really great start to biohacking. The first is the AV association technique. And we haven't talked about the AV association technique in a couple of episodes. It is a memory system that's really easy to apply that is going to train your mind to do a much, much better job at remembering people's names, which is something that, let's be honest, most people really stink at. It's something that you can learn today, you can start applying it today, and you're actually going to start to get some results within, I'd say, about 24 to 48 hours of using the AV Association technique, and it's going to start to train your mind to think in a more systematic way. The Limitless Mindset Community Membership also includes a demo of dual back training software, which is going to begin biohacking your mind. And it finally includes a three and a half hour audio program on memory systems to accompany the AV Association video course. So I think that if someone is completely new to biohacking, but is interested by it, that's going to be a really great start. If you want to take it to the next level, on the homepage of Limitless Mindset, we have some monthly membership packages and these are priced in between $9 a month all the way up to $100 a month. And so, I would take a look at those because those are going to Focus your biohacking efforts on a couple of areas that we found creates really great results quickly, but also creates a lot of long-term sustainable results. And if you check out the homepage of limitlessmindset.com, you'll see some more explanation of that. I'd like to give you a quick heads up about the disorganized sequencing of content in this episode. Me and Dr. Corey spoke for over an hour and 15 minutes, and she dropped some serious knowledge. However, there was about six self-controlled life hacks that we didn't get the chance to chat about, so those life hacks I've added at the end of her interview, and then following those life hacks, I've got the interview with Dr. Kelly Goldsmith. Let's dive into the interview with Dr. Corey now.
1: Welcome to Limitless Mindset. Benvenuti a pensiero senza limiti. Hi, welcome to the Ubian so Thank you
2: motor. Välkommen till gränslöst tänkande.
0: Hey Dr. Corey, how are you doing? Hi. Hi.
2: I've never been called an enabler before.
0: <laughs> oh, really? It it happens to the worst of us. So Dr. Corey, I'd like to begin these interviews by asking our guests to tell something interesting about themselves, and it doesn't necessarily have to relate to what we're discussing in this episode.
2: Ah, okay. Um, Well, I'm a solo comedy performer. Really? Yeah.
0: So is there, a, is there some YouTube channels out there that we can... <laughs>
2: Maybe direct our listeners, too? Uh-oh, I'm coming out of the closet, the kind of top secret. Oh, so, okay. um, It's so. I'm, I'm starting to merge the two. So formerly it was more just uh, my performance. And, um, I mean, I was with a group called the Shamanic Cheerleaders for a long time, and we did a, a lot of, you know, different events and music festivals and things like that. And now I've just started doing my homework and having my own shows. Wow. So there are some YouTubes out there. It'll be a treasure hunt for you guys to find them. <laughs> and like I said, so I'm gonna start coming out with some more videos that are informational that incorporate my entertainer side as well. So
0: some infotainment going on in your area of expertise.
2: Yeah, edutainment. Yeah.
0: Great idea. So, for those of us who might not know exactly what it means when someone says they're a naturopathic doctor, can you kind of give me the rundown on that and tell me a little bit about your experience and areas of study? Sure.
2: Great question. So, a naturopathic doctor is essentially an expert in natural medicine. We really bridge the gap between the conventional medical model and the natural medical model. So, naturopathic doctors. We do pre-med studies. We go to a four-year accredited naturopathic medical school. Um, The basic sciences are very similar in terms of studying. So the basic studies, uh, the basic sciences we study are the same in terms of physiology, biochemistry, clinical and physical diagnosis, laboratory diagnosis, diagnostic imaging, pharmacology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But then on top of that, we layer... Uh, years of study of nutrition, herbal medicine, um, we learn about diet, supplements, physical medicine, hydrotherapy, homeopathy, uh, some of us study Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, so we really get a very well-rounded education in both the conventional, as I mentioned, the conventional medical model and the more natural, what I call traditional medical model, um, And can speak both languages, so it's nice because we're really starting to see the the crossover between those two worlds, where now science is starting to catch up with what we've been saying in natural medicine for a long time, or learning about the herbs, or um, now we're understanding how detoxification works in the body and how to support that from you know a basic scientific nutritional, biochemical understanding. So, um, we really speak both languages.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm a Mm -hmm. big fan of people that are bilingual in their, in their skill sets and in their, in their ability to, to help people be more healthy. I Mm -hmm. kind of feel like Dr. Corey, that in the health world and also in the personal development world, you hear a lot of really general suggestions about self-control. Like uh, like you should get enough sleep. You shouldn't drink alcohol. You should exercise more. You shouldn't waste time watching TV. You should keep track of your money. You shouldn't eat dra- junk food. Except for you, you kind of hear a lot
2: of... shitting on yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those I, I, I hate anything that involves the word should. And mm-hmm. these suggestions are kind of useless if we don't have enough self control in the first place to apply them and stick with them. So this podcast episode I thought you'd be a really interesting person to have a conversation with covering these eighteen very actionable biohacking and kind of mindset solutions to having really rock-solid self-control. And then we could finish up by talking about some of the solutions and work and research you've done in biohacking ourselves for when we have a a moment of of human weakness or we have multiple moments repeatedly of human weakness and we, we do indulge in some of the different consumption options that are out there in the world
2: you know, I stay away from all those like should terms. It's kind of like, where are you right now? Where are you in terms of, if you want to call it self-control or realization of goals that you want to achieve in your life or ways that you want to live? Like if you want to eat more healthfully, if you want to exercise, if you want to get more sleep, you know, like how, how is it that you're going to be able to access this? Um, in the most effective way, without making yourself wrong for not being there right now. And I think part of my role, or where you know where I see I can be helpful for people, is in looking at some of the neurochemistry or some of the patterning that's going on in the body that might be biochemical. Um, for example, I mean a simple example is there are some people that have extreme carbohydrate cravings. And even though they know I uh, shouldn't eat um, all that pasta or all that bread or all those chips or all those those sorts of foods, there may be something going on in the brain biochemically, um, specifically serotonin. Low serotonin is known to increase carbohydrate cravings because when you eat carbohydrates and sugars in the short term, it's going to boost your serotonin levels. So some people have like such an imbalance going on there that – they really can't control themselves. It's not just a matter of going, I sh-, you know, don't eat that. The body's going, eat me, eat me now. And so I look at how can I support people in those sorts of, in that sort of way. And how do you measure
0: those imbalances? Is it something like taking a blood test?
2: You can actually, um, there are some tests and I use them, they're neurotransmitter tests. Um, and I usually use them in conjunction with looking at the adrenals. So it's a neuroadrenal panel and it looks at serotonin levels, dopamine levels, glutamate levels, GABA levels, PEA, uh, adrenaline, noradrenaline or epinephrine, norepinephrine, and then a cortisol level throughout the day. So you can make correlations there. So sometimes you, you know, sometimes I think it's really helpful to measure because there's a lot of nuances. Um, but, You can also, you know, clinically, sometimes through talking to people, you can tell. So if they're like, "Ah, I just feel really down and I'm in a really, you know, great place and um, every afternoon at 3 o'clock, all of a sudden I found myself in front of, you know, an empty pan of brownies that I just ate the whole thing. Um, So if somebody says something to me like that, I can pretty much tell that their serotonin levels are low if somebody's um you know more like i can't wake up in the morning um you know i don't feel fully awake until 3 or 4 in the afternoon um i'm dragging myself around kind of like the waking dead and then you know at night i'm completely wired um then that's often a cortisol imbalance so so it's kind of a mixture of what people tell me um and then clinical picture and then if I need to I can test for that as well.
0: And if people are curious listening to this what is the approximate cost of that test? You said a neuroadrenal test gives you an yeah. idea of where your neurotransmitters might be lacking?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me on this because I don't know the exact price off the top of my head. I do have them um, Available. I have some like do-it-yourself functional tests on my website. But I want to say it's in the three to four hundred dollar range.
0: Dr. Corey, there was this study that was conducted at the Kellogg School of Management that I found really interesting and it was on the subject of self-control. And what they found in this study was that when people moralized their activities, when they took activities and they kind of categorized them as black or white activities, that it made it significantly more difficult for people to say no to the activities that they had categorized as as things that were on the dark side of, of human activity. And the kind of the takeaway that I took from this study and I was actually able to do an interview with the with the head researcher of that study and what I'll do actually mm-hmm. is I'll attach that interview to the end of this podcast episode so our listeners can mm-hmm. check it out. Kind mm-hmm. of my my takeaway from that particular study was that we should really try to avoid going and naming specific things as as bad things or as things that a good person wouldn't do. And instead we should take maybe even kind of a, a little bit more of a sociopathic view of our lifestyle decisions and say, okay, is this thing gonna move me towards my goals? If not, then I'm gonna try to avoid it. Um, but I'm not going to I'm not gonna pass judgment on this particular activity.
2: Yeah, I mean that's kind of what I was saying about like shooting on yourself. Of, I mean, I think blacks and wh- black and white thinking is 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 dangerous. I think not dangerous. That's an exaggeration, but I don't think it necessarily leads us to a fulfilled, happy life. I think we have to acknowledge that there's shades of gray in everything, and there's no right and wrong. It's all you know. We get that input from our programming from our families, from our culture, from our society, from, you know, whatever, wherever you want to go with that. Um, And I don't necessarily think it makes for happier, healthy people um, having absolutes. So I think we have to see ourselves as always on a a spectrum of moving towards, you know, what it is that we want to achieve and what we want and what we desire. And, and, yeah, go ahead. And,
0: and that kind of segues into a philosophical idea that I think you'll be a fan of, and that's the this idea of ethical hedonism, which there is this guy who was a student student of Socrates a long time ago and he didn't he didn't really believe in an afterlife and so he figured that the, the the greatest good was to essentially have a good time but you know have a good time enjoy life without hurting other people and so I think if we take the the concept of being occasional, Ethical hedonist, um, but at the same time trying to not pr- do absolute moral judgment on our activities that will give us a that will set us up for for greater self control when we're when we're facing different decisions. Um, I wanted to.
2: Well, I, can I make a comment on that? Because I just think I think pleasure is a great guidepost. Going what bring you know going with what brings you pleasure. I actually have a colleague who has a whole weight loss program based on, you know, it's called pleasurable weight loss. And it's, and I think pleasure is something that we, I mean, we've kind of beaten out of ourselves a little bit. Like I want, you know, on one hand we can overindulge with it because we deprive ourselves of it. So it's about integrating pleasure organically into our life. And if you look at You know, if we have a wheel or a pie chart of all the different things we need in our lives to be healthy, like a healthy diet and enough sleep and water and exercise and, um, perhaps, you know, a connection with others and a spiritual practice, pleasure and fun is in that pie chart. And it's one that's often overlooked as something that's critical for us to be fully embodied and fully human. And so, um, you know, we don't always want to go with. I mean, not everything is necessarily going to be fun, but you can use that as is. Am I enjoying this, or can I make this more fun in order to move myself towards greater health? And um, and I'll, on in that on that note too. I mean, one of the areas that I work in is if you do indulge in things that you might find pleasurable, which may not be healthy how do you reduce the harm? So being conscious in that too, like some things are pleasurable and really promoting our health and other things might be pleasurable and we need to, you know, just check ourselves before we wreck ourselves.
0: (laughs) I would say on my own personal pie chart of pleasure, chocolate is definitely a major (laughs) item.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Again, there's a whole spectrum of chocolate. Like, are you eating Hershey's, non-organic, high-sugar, high-processed chocolate? Are you eating a darker, higher cacao content, higher antioxidant, naturally sweetened chocolate? And how much are you eating? Like a giant pound thing from Trader Joe's or a couple squares? And and chocolate does have you know it's got a lot of antioxidants in it, magnesium. It's it's one of the better sweets we can have if we're talking about you know pure chocolate.
0: What's the? I'm a, I'm a fan. What's the general rule of thumb with chocolate? Is it that stuff that's over seventy percent cacao is pretty positive for our for our overall mind and body? Ooh.
2: You know, I think 70% is a good ratio. I mean, ideally, 100% is great, like using cacao nibs or raw cacao powder, actually eating the cacao bean. It's a little bit more bitter, um, but bitter foods are actually good for us. They're good for our liver. Um, I don't think I have a specific rule, but generally I say, like, one or two squares of a good dark chocolate a day is is okay. And, um, May be beneficial
0: on the article that I sent you, number four was arbitrary habit formation triggers gains in universal self control and this was a this was a, a cool study that had come out of the University of Texas at dallas and what they were looking at there that that developing small habits in a particular Mm -hmm. domain of your life increases the amount of general self-control you have in that area, In uh, the amount of general self-control you have in that particular area. Is this something that you found with the patients that you work with?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, and that's a lot of times what people will come to a doctor, come to a naturopath. Even I see people who know a lot about health and know a lot about natural health, but they're like, tell me what to do, you know, and they want somebody to say, here's what you do. Here's what you take. Here's what you eat. And so just beginning by things with, um, you know, say for example, a lot of people have a hard time eating breakfast and, like they say, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and you want to make sure you get some good protein in there and get some nutrients in. So even starting to eat breakfast, you start with something like that, and then you can build from there, or taking your vitamins. It's a little habit. But once you start, what I find is once you start making those little commitments, your are your other habits rally around to support you. I see that a lot in cleanses because I do a lot of cleansing and detoxing with people. And once they make that commitment, all these other things in their life start stacking up behind them to support them and moving towards their goals. And really, you know, I have a, a, a mentor and a friend and she says, all we have really is our word. That's all we have. And so when you keep your word to yourself, in just little ways, like I'm going to take my vitamins every day or I'm going to exercise 30 minutes every day or five times a week or whatever that is, then you start um, you start building in these natural mechanisms to support yourself. So I like, that's a great study. It's really interesting. I'm just looking at the chart right now. And I love that people have actually studied it that you see a, see an actual reference to something that's just, you know, I've, I've seen clinically.
0: Hey, Dr. Corey, to be honest with you, I am not a very big fan of breakfast. It, it kind of seems like a waste of time to me. Can you, what's, what's the deal with breakfast? Can you, can you sell me on breakfast? Cause I, I prefer to just <laughs> drink some green tea, maybe have a tiny little snack and just mm-hmm. wait until, wait until lunch.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, everybody, there's a lot of different theories about food and lots of different diets and lots of different approaches. It seems to me that breakfast is one that's pretty common that, They're finding that kids that eat breakfast have a lot better attention and focus and do better in school. Um, One of the main reasons why you want to have breakfast is to manage your blood sugar. So um, a lot of people will go into like low blood sugar and then if they don't eat in the morning, especially because they haven't eaten since, you know, at nighttime, that that puts some stress on the body and then you have a big lunch and your blood sugar goes way up. And so these like big variations in blood sugar can be stressful on the body. Also, I like to look at traditions and just sort of some logic, which is especially looking at Ayurveda, they they feel like you should definitely have breakfast, lunch should be your biggest meal, and then a light dinner. And because we really want, um, we want to have the calories coming in when we're going to be using them. So... Um, that said, you want to have your calories earlier in the day while you're moving around and you're active and you're going to burn them versus eating late at night, which you know in European traditions um, or current European traditions and maybe even in South America they can tend to eat later at night. But going going to yeah going to bed with a full belly is actually kind of stressful on the body because then your liver and your digestive tract need to work overtime at night when they're really supposed to be rebuilding and replenishing and rejuvenating and resting.
0: So as far as I, I imagine a lot of uh, your work involves teaching your clients to form habits and In a perfect world, you know, all little kids would be taught how to form habits. But I think a lot of people grow up not really having a a specific process for forming good habits. And this is the process that has worked the best for me. I'm interested in if it's kind of the same as what you use is, first of all, is you kind of pick a trigger and then you associate it to a behavior and then you reward That behavior. So my example is I'm trying to practice my Spanish as much as possible so I can become really fluent in a second language. So my trigger is that when I wake up in the morning, I'll listen to a little bit of salsa music as my alarm clock. Uh And then when I walk downstairs in the hostel kitchen, I will chit-chat with the employees in Spanish. Or with the other guests at the hotel at a hostel in Spanish. And then I'll walk down to the market and buy my favorite fruit from a street vendor to kind of, to reward that activity. And if I, if I don't have a conversation with someone in Spanish in the morning time, then I don't give myself that little reward of going and buying my <laughs> like favorite fruit. fruit.
2: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. It's kind of like the rat in the maze. <laughs> Right, The rat goes the right way. You get the cheese. And so I think giving yourself rewards or um, you know, positive feedback mechanisms like that can be really effective.
0: Something I thought was interesting was the relationship between, self, between stress and willpower. So the biological signs of willpower are slowed down breathing, decreased pulse rates, and what puts us into a balanced autonomic nervous state. So we're more, we're more tranquil while exerting willpower. If we look at the biological signs of stress, it's this fight or flight biology which is faster breathing hypertension increased pulse rate and spikes in adrenaline and cortisol so you could make the case that it's it's almost impossible or that it's very difficult to exercise a high amount of self control if you're in a stressed state so i'm curious when you're dealing with a client and they tell you that they have a lot of stress in their life and you can you can either see it physically on them or you can just tell that they're highly stressed what are the first couple things that you suggest or 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 biohacks you have for dealing with stress biohacks
2: let's start using that term my nutritional biohacks um well Generally, I mean whenever I see people I'm always looking at what are they eating? What are their lifestyle habits? Um, most of the time people will come in and you know most people are pretty stressed these days. We went from stress being a very positive response, we needed it. We needed that fight or flight when we were faced with the saber-toothed tiger and we had to run for our lives and the body will then shunt all the blood from our brain and our vital organs into our skeletal muscles, so we can run for our life. Um, but nowadays, we don't we don't have that saber tooth tiger. But our bodies are almost always in, for many people, are almost always in this fight or flight stress response because the saber tooth tiger is now. The to-do list and job stress and money stress and family and traffic and driving. So we're always kind of like hyper vigilant. Um, Another thing I just want to comment about: there's fight and there's flight, and another response that people don't always talk about is freezing. It's you know kind of playing dead and freezing. And so um, sometimes when we get that extreme inertia and inability to motivate, um, it's because we're kind of just everything goes on, on lockdown. And, but one of my, um, to answer your question about my favorite biohacks. So whenever I see somebody that's in a chronic state of stress, um, I always want to support their adrenal glands because those are the ones that are acting as a stress buffer and can eventually just get fried. Um, if we're under stress for too long and we don't want our adrenal glands to get fried. And then the second thing I'll do is, um, well, one of my favorite biohacks is L-theanine. I don't know if you're familiar with that or not, or have tried it. It's, um, it's an amino acid derivative, um, but it's from green tea and also derived from oolong tea and it really helps provide calm focus and um so it, it 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 decreases that stress and anxiety level without sedating so that's one of the things i really like i call it my little helper <laughs> just because if there's times where i feel like oh my god there's so much to do and i'm running around and i'm so anxious inside um then that you know that just kind of quiets quiets the mind calms the water where all of a sudden I'm like oh I'm not anxious anymore and I'm able to focus and I don't use it that much anymore but I use it a lot with personally but I use it a lot with my patients and um I get really good results with that
0: and do you recommend taking l theanine as, as a supplement form or just drinking green tea
2: Um, I like it in the supplement form because you actually, um, you have to, I mean, green tea is great in terms of antioxidant properties, anti-cancer properties. It does have some L-theanine in it, um, but it doesn't have the same potency as you would get in in a capsule. So I think if you're not very stressed, and then the other thing with the green tea is you do get a little bit of the caffeine, which for some people doesn't work for them.
0: Oh, what are your thoughts on caffeine? Is it good thing, bad thing, or is it kind of like a double-edged sword?
2: I think it's a, you know, I don't know about double-edged sword. I think it's overused. Um, I think we self-medicate a lot with caffeine as a culture because, you know, it's kind of like this do-do-do, achieve-achieve-achieve-driven culture. And I think we're pretty out of balance with our natural cycles. And so we rely on caffeine as a crutch. Um, there's a difference, in my opinion, between getting grand, green, uh, caffeine from green tea versus coffee, which I think coffee is a lot harder on the body, uh, more acidic, harder on the kidneys, harder on the digestive tract, can create more problems down the line. Um... And what I see with people relying a lot on caffeine is that their energy levels are just really up and down. So while caffeine in the short term might be able to cause, you know, create more focus, um, you know, there's so many dips and spikes in the energy level um, that it can be challenging. And having, you know, taken thousands of people through two week cleanse and detox programs where we stop caffeine, they find that, oh my gosh. You know, my energy is so much clearer, so much more consistent, and I wake up feeling clear, and at night, I'm actually tired and ready to go to bed. So I like to move people more towards a natural state if possible.
0: Moving forward, another area where I think we fail a lot when it comes to self-control and willpower is our moderate addiction in general as a society to our technology and to our our glowing screens and our <laughs> our constant drive to check our, our social media or check our email or look at these technology things that are useful tools but they don't need to be useful tools every every two minutes when we're when we're going about our lives. And What I was reading that I found interesting is that sporadic rewards are a great driver of human addictions Mm. and habits, and this is why technology is so compelling. This is why... We, and I've even heard technology entrepreneurs talk about how social media is kind of set up to to gamify this particular aspect of our psychology that if we check Facebook, we might have a message from some person we want to hear from, or we might have some likes on that, that hilarious status update that we posted recently. And what this does is it forces us to kind of have a, a psychological itch when it comes to checking our technology, and I feel like uh, checking, spending so much time with our glowing screens can sometimes take away from the the most human experiences that we are going to derive real pleasure from.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, I think there's a lot in that statement that you just made. I just recently went to a great conference called Wisdom 2.0 that really looked at that interface between technology and mindfulness and spirituality. And one of the things that um oh, I'm not going to remember his name, but he's the he's one of the creators of Asana and worked for Facebook and uh Google when they started. And one of the things he said is that um, part of it is that people are just really wanting connection and that the way technology has evolved and the way our lives have evolved and culture has evolved is that we're becoming more and more isolated. We don't have our tribe and we don't have our community. We don't have those people near us all the time. So that checking your Facebook to see, oh, somebody commented or somebody, it's, it's that desire to to be connected with other people. And... So I, I think it's really interesting. Um, I, you know, I've been a, a naturopathic doctor for about 14 years now. I've been leading these cleanse groups and, um, you know, get getting people off of other addictions like caffeine, like sugar, wheat. These sort of things, and I recently participated in supporting this forty-day transformational yoga program where people did yoga for forty days, and they were uh, they had to give something up during that time. And I thought, like, oh, people give up caffeine, or people give up sugar. And I was, you know, I had my eyes really opened to where we're going culturally because there are lots of people that said, I'm going to give up video games. I'm going to give up Facebook for the 40 days. I'm going to give up taking my laptop to bed with me and, you know, watching streaming downloads. And so I just went, wow, okay. (laughs) We have new types of addictions that we're dealing with. And, um, I'm, I'm definitely exploring this, um, in terms of you know what is that health imp- what what do, how does that impact our health and how can we break some of those habits and you know part of my concern is the radiation that comes with that and you know the world health organization came out with a study saying that cell phone use does you know contribute to brain cancers and they're slow growing so we might not be seeing them for a few years out but now, what are ways that we can protect ourselves from just we're bombarded with Wi-Fi and all kinds of radiation these days. So what impact is that going to have on our health?
0: So I'm curious for the people that were involved with this 40 day. By the way that that sounds awesome too. I bet those people felt like I bet I bet everyone in that group felt like a million bucks after mm-hmm. 40 days of doing yoga and abstaining from a particular practice. I'm curious for the people that were abstaining from technology related habits was there did they report or did you observe any personality changes in general for the people that were focusing on on tech changing their technology habits
2: yeah you know unfortunately I'm not sure if I can really make that assessment as I was just um, you know brought in for uh, kind of like a two-week portion of it. So I didn't really get to track people from beginning to end. But I know in that short term, they definitely had shifts in their sleep patterns and habits. And, um, you know, I think they found maybe some more connection. And I imagine more connection in their relationships if they were in partnership, you know, instead of being on technology at night, actually having conversations with people
0: there was an article in psychology today that I found really interesting and it was on the relationship between fear and willpower. And so fear, it obviously gets kind of a, a bad rap, but this article was suggesting that fear can actually be a pretty useful tool for us to exercise willpower. And mm-hmm. they, they use an example of this woman named Lucy who had lost both, or she had lost one of her amygdalas and sporadically her remaining amygdala would go out of commission and that when her remaining amygdala stopped functioning, she would lose complete self-control. And so everything that you think of as as pleasurable or enjoyable, she would just do it to excess without stopping okay. and without any kind of concern for social norms a wow. second amygdala had gone out of commission and so kind of the personal development takeaway that i got from this was that fear can be a useful trigger for us to exercise self control um, in regards to different different habits that we have and so one of the uh, one of the life hacks that i think is a useful way of kind of uh, of, uh, of taking this and using it is I personally, I really enjoy watching like morbid documentaries about like really terrible things out in the world. And I watch these because I know that by kind of exposing myself to – negative things that might be really completely alien to my own personal life experience, that'll allow me to take uh, fear and use it as a little bit of a self-control, as as a self-control tool. Like, for example, there have been a number of really good documentaries done on diet and on people that, you know, just became excessively obese and unhealthy as a result. And even though I'm, you know, in pretty good shape, I'm really far away from ever being obese, I'll watch documentaries like this so that if I'm at a restaurant and I see a piece of unhealthy food that looks really delicious, I'll think about that particular documentary, and that'll give me the willpower to say no to things.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I'm... That's it. I think that can be a useful tool. Um, Yeah, sometimes I think there's different tactics and different things are going to work with different people. I I tend to be a little less fear-based. I mean, I definitely want to give people a dose of reality in terms of like, yo, you keep up with this, then, you know, this is where you might be heading. But I find that using that, I think I used that a little bit more in my medical practice in the beginning, and then I found that it just didn't really work. It made people feel bad, and people don't really want to feel bad. They do enough of that self-flagellation on their own. So, um, you know, I like that reward motivator a little bit better that we talked about earlier.
0: (sighs) So I've I've identified three different nootropics that increase self-control, and I'm going to add the one you mentioned, which is L-theanine. The other three nootropics that increase self-control were paracetam, 5-HTP, and L-tyrazine. And I'm curious, do you do much work with those? Um, Definitely. um, Not
2: paracetam. But I definitely use tyrosine and 5-HTP. My party packs, my extreme party packs, have both of those ingredients in there. Um, And that's because, you know, supporting serotonin and the tyrosine supports dopamine levels as well as thyroid hormone. So it supports our metabolism. So those can definitely be helpful. Um, Not for everybody. But um, for a lot of people, they can be really helpful. And I think one of the things to consider, too, is that um, these things don't exist in a bubble. So when you take something like 5-HTP or tyrosine, they're amino acid precursors to different neurotransmitters. So 5-HTP gets converted into serotonin and tyrosine gets converted into dopamine. But there's different nutritional cofactors that you need for that process to happen. Like in the sense of 5-HTP, you need activated B6, so you need B6 for that to happen. So um, you need to remember to take the cofactors along with those substances as well.
0: And so for paracetam, the cofactor, I believe, is alpha-GPC or coline. For 5-HTP, you said it was B6 was the cofactor? And B6, for, B12, B12 and, and vitamin C. Okay. And mm-hmm. for L-tyrosine, what's the cofactor for that?
2: Um, tyrosine, definitely you want some B6 in there as well. Um, there might be
1: another one, but... Basically you want some bees. Mhm.
0: Mhm. I have.
2: And I've definitely worked with some that want to stop smoking, um, and use different, um, herbs or homeopathic remedies and also some just behavioral stuff. Um, I'm just starting to look into more of the neurotransmitter support because, um, you know, the, the nicotinic receptors are cholinergic receptors. So, using things that can 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 possibly like activate them in a lesser way. So anything that's going to support acetylcholine um like you were mentioning the alpha gpc and the choline and also DMAE. Um then also things that are going to support just addictive behaviors. So um supporting dopamine levels as well. So I um I've yet to really explore that, but it's probably one of the next packs that I'm gonna make is how to support um, you know, people that wanna manage their tobacco cravings. Cool okay. cravings. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I really think that's one of the, the best things that you can you can help people with, especially because it's so hard. To quit smoking, that's such a, that's such a monumental self-control challenge that I feel like if people are able to quit smoking, then they'll be empowered to take on all kinds of other challenges in life Mm -hmm. because that particular one is just so hard. So any kind of solutions, ways we can help people stop Smoking, I think, are, are really positive changes that we can make in the world. One of the other things that i read really consistently increases willpower is a meditation practice, which builds gray matter and it increases the density of synaptic connections in areas of the brain that control decision-making and emotions. And for, for people that aren't really experienced with self-control, this is, well, based upon my own personal experience, this is why meditation really helps with self-control, is that when you first start meditating, it's really pretty hard to do, because your mind has an inclination to think about that itch you have, it has an inclination to think about some bill that you have due, it has an inclination to think about an email that you need to respond to, and... Meditation is about purposely ignoring all of those things and going into that zone. And so I imagine as a naturopathic doctor, you've done a lot of work with meditation.
2: Yeah, I have. And um, I think, you know, there's a lot, a lot of different techniques um, to meditating and that different people have different ways of accessing and getting themselves into um, those other brainwave states of just, um, you know, being able to, I, I, like to I, I like to use the analogy of if you think about us or our minds as um, you have some cloudy water, like some muddy water in a glass. And then when you meditate, it allows that sediment to settle and you have the clearer water. So it allows you to make clearer decisions, more connected decisions, kind of gets all the brain and all the confusion and all the thinking out of the way so that you can really tune in to maybe what is my heart saying or, you know, what is my guidance telling me is more in alignment for myself or what is, if you want to put it in more lay terms, what is the right choice for me to really make? And, um, there's so many different techniques and it's. I think what's challenging is we're such a, a comparing and competitive culture that it's like, God, ah, I can't, here comes another thought, and ah, I can't get it out of my head, and that person's meditating better than I am, and it's really, um, it's such a personal thing. It's really about your own path and your own experience, and sometimes you might need a meditation that's a walking meditation. Sometimes you might need to like just sit and stare at the wall. Sometimes you can look at a candle or an image of something that is peaceful for you. Sometimes you might chant, and that's your meditation um, or guided imagery. There's so many different ways, but it's just really about, you know, about doing your best to quiet the mind. And it's not necessarily about like ascending to some other place. I think I used to think that. That was the goal was to go to that place where I was kind of disconnected from, from this reality and then would like come back and I'd be like, Ooh, so, you know, a very magical spiritual experience. But then I'd started realizing that when I was doing that, I was going unconscious and it was, it was a disconnect. So it's, you know, having a practice where you can get to those altered brain states, but be able to integrate the information that you're getting instead of, you know, being unconscious and out there in some nirvana.
0: (laughs) My understanding of meditation is that there's kind of two generalized categories of it, which are focused attention meditation and open monitoring. And I've tried both of these What I find is that I enjoy focused attention a whole lot more because I Mm -hmm. find my, as the name suggests, I find that my attention wanders to irrelevant stuff a whole lot less when I'm Mm -hmm. doing the focused attention thing as opposed to when I'm just open to everything going on around me. I'm curious, is there... Some gen. Are there any general rules of thumb as far as which kind of personalities match which kinds of meditation most effectively?
2: Hmm. I mean, that's getting into arena that I, you know, I I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that department. Um. I know I've just had to try a lot of different paths, and some people say there's different ones that work for men versus women or some people like the slower path, some people like the fast pass. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I can answer that.
0: For it's, you. Like, it's kind of just something that people need to experiment with and see what fits them the best. See what yeah. they like the results from the most.
1: Yeah. yeah or the, the experience,
0: experience too. too. So because, because if you appreciate the experience, experience gonna you're going to do, do it. it. Biohack number 18 for self-control is that regular physical exercise correlates to gains in self-control. And this is from a 2006 Australian study. And what they had to say was that during the regulatory exercise phase, participants also reported significant decreases in perceived stress, emotional distress, smoking, alcohol, and caffeine consumption, and an increase in healthy eating, emotional control, maintenance or household chores, attendance to commitments, monitoring of spending, and improvement in study habits. And I guess this one's a little bit of a common sense type thing that if you're exercising regularly, you're going to have higher self-control in general in your life. But I thought that was – Nice that there was a study that had that had quantified that. They had taken two groups of people and one group of people they had do ex do cardiovascular exercise really consistently, about three hours a week. And then the other group, I assume they just told them to sit on the couch for three hours a week, and they showed a fairly significant uh, a fairly significant correlation in self-control requiring activities between those two groups. So if people need quantifiable evidence that getting out there and doing that cardio exercise is good for your self-control in general, we'll have that study linked up in the show notes. Great. 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 Yeah. yeah. Biohack number 13... Or let's see, biohack number 13 is to snack during the day. And i say my favorite snack during the day is chocolate-covered almonds. Are you a fan of chocolate-covered almonds as well?
2: Um, I, mean, I mean, yes, yes I, I like, like chocolate chocolate-covered covered almonds. almonds. I, don't I don't know if, know they're, if they're the, the healthiest, healthiest snack, snack but, but, but I, I like, like them. them.
0: What snacks are on the top of your list? Or what's, what snacks are sitting next to your computer right now?
2: There are no no snacks snacks sitting sitting next to my my computer computer right now. I've got a lot of vitamins vitamins sitting next to my computer. computer. Um, I'm not a a huge huge snacker. snacker. I mean, I I will will from from time time to time. time. Um... And, and again, again, there's different thoughts, different thoughts on, on should, should you, you snack, should you not, not snack. snack? I think it really, it really depends, depends on the person. person. Um, people, people that have that blood sugar definitely. 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 definitely snacking is good. Having a little, little something every couple hours. So something like nuts and seeds are great snacks because they have protein in them as well as a little bit of carbs and a little fiber. Whole fruit can be a good snack. Um, I like to recommend having um, not just a carbohydrate snack. So in the case of whole fruit, you're also getting fiber in there. But to have a snack that has protein, fat, and fiber in it, that's going to be balancing for your blood sugar. So things, you know, celery and hummus is something I like to snack on. Or if you're going to have something like a rice cake or a rice cracker, to have it with some some nut butter on it like almond butter.
0: Your experience with with Burning Man and how that turned into the party <laughs> packs, which are a, a product that's designed specifically for people's consumption habits.
2: My biohack. Um, yeah, so let's see. I went to Burning Man in, I think, 2003. For those of you who don't know, Burning Man is a big festival out in the desert. It's, um, there's nothing out there. It's, uh, exercise and self reliance. You have to bring everything you need and people form camps and communities and create a lot of art and there's a lot of music and it's something that's grown, um, tremendously throughout the years. And, um, one of the beauties of it is it's a gift economy. There's no money out there. So you have to either bring everything you need or you share. People share a lot. And um, I was going with a group of people that um, didn't take very good care of themselves, weren't very healthy, and partied a lot, drank a lot, um, took various recreational substances. So I decided to use my you know, neurochemistry nutritional chemistry chops and see what I could come up with in terms of creating some products to help them recover and protect their liver and replenish their neurotransmitter levels. I see that depletion in neurotransmitters as a big causative factor for um, crave behaviors, cravings, um, and addictive behaviors. So, for example, what happens when people this is why people build up tolerance to alcohol or other substances um, like cocaine or ecstasy, is that when they take those substances, the neurotransmitters get depleted and then you start to need, um, you get a down regulation happening in the brain and you start to need more and more of the substance to get the same effect. So what I found was by replacing those neurotransmitters, And replacing the nutrients that got depleted is that um, people recovered a lot faster, didn't necessarily have the hangovers, didn't have the big dips in mood and energy the next few days, and were able to then get back to their lives and get back to their world more effectively. And, um, And ideally, not need so much of the substance to get the same effect that they would like to have.
0: Really, so I'm curious when people were using this out in the playa at Burning Man, would this allow them, for example, to go to a, a Paul oakenfold Apollo Oakenfold rave one night and then the next morning go and do yoga at a camp?
2: Uh-huh Well, it's, you know it's that's not they're not necessarily designed so that you can just like keep going and going and going. Um, the extreme pack actually, what I say is it kind of swaddles the nervous system. So sometimes people will be up at night and then they'll still be sort of like, Oh God, I'm really tired, but I'm wired and I can't, you know, I can't calm down. Um, and so the packs can kind of help swaddle the nervous system so that you can't actually go to sleep if you'd like to go to sleep. Um, some people do stay up all night and go to a yoga class the next morning and then sleep all day if they have um, access to an r v or something like that but they're they're more designed to um, you know make sure that you 're not crashing um, keep you feeling more more human <laughs> as say party like a rock star feel like a human the next day. Um, Because you start seeing people that are just, I mean, it's an extreme environment. There's dehydration, they're not eating, um, they're not sleeping, they're dancing and walking and biking all over. So the body gets really depleted. So it was my attempt, um, fairly effective attempt, to help replenish the body um, from these activities. They're right here.
0: This this episode, because it's dealing a lot with self control and addiction, I'm curious. Your party packs would you recommend? Like, let's say, let's say someone was addicted to methamphetamines or to cocaine, mm-hmm. or let's say someone was a real alcoholic. Would you recommend your party packs to a person like that?
2: Um, I think they'd be a very helpful tool. I I mean. The party packs are more... They're something that you could take every day. Um, They're more designed for people that are, you know, more sporadically indulging. Or, um, for example, the booze pack, I have a lot of customers who just, you know, they might say, "I I can't even drink a glass of wine anymore without feeling terrible the next day. So they find that using the support from... The booze pack can help them d- detoxify the alcohol more effectively, so they don't feel so toxic or you know crappy the next day. Somebody that had a significant alcohol or cocaine or methamphetamine um, habit, I would probably want to do um, more than just the party packs. <laughs> I mean, the party packs could definitely help. I don't, I don't necessarily think that. That's all that's needed. I haven't really had that opportunity um, for somebody with significant addiction to say, here, take every, here take this every day and let's see what happens. But I can see it being a very effective part of recovery is what you see with people who are alcoholics. Um, for example, they'll switch, uh, they'll stop drinking, but then they'll have really significant sugar cravings. Or um, they'll like caffeine a lot. They'll replace the addiction with another one because sugar stimulates the same neurotransmitters as the alcohol to a certain degree. And that's why a lot of people going through recovery um, will be given antidepressants because we're trying to boost the serotonin levels. So I see them or this strategy as being a much more effective strategy Um, for balancing neurotransmitter levels and perhaps supporting long-term addiction recovery.
0: Well, there's an expression that I like when it comes to these sorts of vices, and the expression is that the abusers make the users look bad. And so it sounds like the party packs are more Mm -hmm. for the users than they are for the abusers.
2: You know, there's a fine line between use and abuse as well. Um, so, you know, for example, with alcohol, we've been hearing that, oh, moderate use of alcohol may actually be healthy for us. Uh, but there was a Rutgers study that came out saying there's a fine line between moderate use and binge use. So you might be moderate, maybe a glass or two through the week and then drink, drink more heavily on the weekends, which is considered binge drinking if you go from like having a glass of wine to having, you know, maybe three or four drinks or more during the weekend. And that can actually be damaging to uh, our brain cells and the parts of our brain that, that you know, regenerate. So um, the, the party packs kind of span a lot of different niches um, everything from, as I mentioned, someone that doesn't drink or doesn't party very often and they want to protect their body in all ways, shapes or forms when they do that, or they don't recover well. They know they don't recover well. So they want something to help them. Um, it's also from more of what I call like the conscious partier, which a lot of people who go to Burning Man or who are using certain substances in more ceremonial settings or, um, as peak experiences, psychedelics, things like that, and they want to again recover and replace what gets depleted during the experience. Um, I would love for people who were heavy partiers to be using the party packs really regularly um, that would be an you know that would be awesome in my book and ideally um, you know puts into question, can you party? like a rock star, and still be healthy? Like, and what is health? And so I'm exploring that right now in terms of like a philosophical inquiry and as part of my guide in terms of product creation and promotion. And yeah, so I hope that really heavy partiers (laughs) will use them because um, I see them as a gateway. You know, you start realizing that this packet of vitamins can help you recover and feel better and maybe not have such strong cravings. And then you start to wonder, Oh, well, what else can I do for my health? What can I eat?
0: Dr. Mm -hmm. Corey, I got a question for for you. What do the party packs taste like?
2: Well, they're pills, they're capsules. Yeah. So they're in capsules. So they don't really taste like much.
0: What I'm curious about once upon a time I was a nightclub promoter and I had a couple of those companies that produce like Hangover cure tablets send me samples. In fact, I had one company that sent me like this, this box with hundreds of hangover cure samples in it. And so obviously I experimented with them quite a bit and I had mm-hmm. a number of the people that were coming to my events at clubs in Denver experiment with these hangover cures and one of the responses that we got really consistently from people was that the hangover cure tablets that you would dissolve in like a glass of water or in your or in your cocktail was that they tasted really terrible and that they mm-hmm. give people upset stomachs somehow mm-hmm. from time to time I would say i don't know about about thirty to forty percent of the people that tried them reported getting upset stomachs from The hangover cure, which makes it kind of counterintuitive because a lot of people would paradoxically rather have a hangover than have an upset stomach. And so I'm wondering what the competitive differences are between party packs and some of these hangover cures that you might see, like, sold over the counter at gas stations or places like that.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Um well it's you know i'll do my best but without actually knowing what the product is and what's in it it's going to be hard for me to make specific comparisons but what i see is that first of all there's a number of things that happen to promote a hangover or why we get a hangover and basically the main thing is it's side effect of alcohol toxicity so one of the things that you want to make sure you do is support the detoxification of alcohol effectively in the body. And um, in that process, you want to support an enzyme called acetyl dehydrogenase um, because you can create substances in the detox process that actually more toxic than the alcohol itself. So you need to make sure you're supporting those detox pathways. So that takes B vitamins, that takes magnesium, that takes vitamin C, and that can take certain amino acids. So um, on the whole, what I see with these hangover remedies is that it's really hard to get everything that you need in one pill. A lot of them are like one pill, and they're usually mainly just B vitamins. So B vitamins certainly get depleted, um, but you also have issues with electrolyte imbalance. You have issues with blood sugar imbalance. Um, so all those things can contribute to a hangover and need to be supported. So, um, you know, sometimes two people will be taking them on an empty stomach and, maybe that was creating some of the stomach upset. I recommend taking the booze pack before bed um, and ideally with some coconut water or something that's going to be really good at replacing electrolytes. Um, And I find that that's the most effective way. I mean, you you can mitigate hangover symptoms, you can help prevent hangover symptoms, but if you're going to just, drink a ton of booze, especially a ton of like cheap, dark booze or something like that. Um, It's toxic. There's only so much you're going to be able to do. It's, um, it's not like a miracle.
0: Speaking of coconuts, it's funny. I just today published a video specifically on coconuts that I'll link on the show notes for this episode. But yeah, I would say coconuts are one of the top biohacks for for dealing with hangovers. Would you say do you drink uh do you ever drink vodka and coconut water cuz that's that's my personal that's my favorite cocktail.
2: Uh no. I don't I don't do vodka. <laughs> But that's a good idea. I mean, it's just kind of like hydrate yourself. So, you know, what you choose to mix your alcohol with is going to make a difference. So going with something like coconut water, even though it's a little bit sweet, it's going to have the electrolytes in it. Or going with a mixer that's more like soda water as opposed to a Coke or a really sweet fruit juice. So the more, the sweeter the drink and the cocktail, the more it's going to contribute to the hangover.
0: All right. Well, Dr. Corey, thanks so much for spending this time with me here. The yeah. party packs, both the extreme pack and the booze pack, we have listed in the Limitless Mindset Mind Power directory. And for the listeners, can you also give your URL where you've got these for sale?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um,
0: drcory.com. Dr. So, so www.drcory.com. D- d- and, and there's, there's a link right, right, right there for, for the party,
2: party packs. packs.
0: Excellent. And what's the pricing like on them?
2: Um they are, let's see, on the website and I just got boxes of them, so I'm really excited. So they're gonna be coming in um four, twelve, twenty four, and fifty count boxes. And um they're um I th- let's see, the four count boxes 19 uh nineteen ninety five and then it kind of goes up from there. So it's a, it's a little less than five bucks a pack if you buy them in smaller quantities. And then of course the price comes down with bigger quantities.
0: So would you consume like a single pack for a single night out? Is that a good rule of thumb?
2: Generally? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, um, as I said, the extreme pack has a little bit more of an impact on the nervous system and the neurotransmitters. The booze pack has a little bit more of an impact on the liver and detoxification. So if you're mixing substances, you might want to take you know one of each. Um, but generally, one, one per, per night. But if you are going hard or heavier, you might want to do more than one.
0: Okay, good to know. Well, thanks again for your time, Dr. Corey. Look forward to chatting with you at some point in the future.
2: You're welcome. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: The simplest self-control hack that me and Dr. Corey didn't have the opportunity to chat about which nobody practices, is that if you have a self-control problem with something, avoid that thing. Here's some examples. If you have a problem with alcoholism, stop hanging out with your drinking buddies. If you have a problem with cigarettes, walk out of the room if someone lights up. Don't hang out at places that people are going to be smoking. Avoid going to stores where cigarettes are displayed and pay for your gas at the pump if you have a problem with shopping and being a spendaholic then avoid malls and stores when you do go to the store write up a concise list of what you're shopping for if you have a problem with cocaine like a lot of people do here in Medellin Colombia don't go to that party where people are don't go to that party where people are going to be using cocaine if you have an issue with Sexual promiscuity, cut your contacts and ties with a person that you're inappropriately attracted to or only see and communicate with them in a professional environment. If you have a problem with snack food, don't go down the snack aisle or better yet, order some delicious, healthy snacks, which we have a lot of resources for on our website. If you have a problem with self-control wasting time watching TV, then sell your TV or cancel your cable service. It's really important to understand that your brain is a crappy predictor of future pleasure. That's right, the brain does a surprisingly bad job of anticipating what's going to be highly pleasurable for you in the future. How many times have you been really excited about something only to discover that it's quite mediocre? Be more mindful of your brain telling you that you're going to enjoy things that will actually suck. Like getting drunk, getting high, eating fatty foods, smoking a cigarette, blowing money at the mall, or having unprotected sex with an unhealthy person. Here's a technology life hack for self-control. Exercise executive function with dual NBAC training software. So a University of Switzerland study and a 2012 German study demonstrated that a few weeks of dual NBAC training will consistently increase executive function. Executive function is our ability to practice mental discipline, to concentrate intently on one thing while ignoring something else, to mentally compartmentalize, i to mentally compartmentalize activities, direct attention with specificity, or to apply all creative energy towards a task until its completion. From the abstract of the German study, following NBAC training, participants showed improvements in the trained task as well as in the transfer working memory updating task. As for the other executive functions, trained participants improved in task switching situation and attentional processing. The University of Minnesota also conducted a study focusing on the transfer effects between executive function, dual end back training, and self control, entitled Self Regulation and Executive Function, the self as controlling agent. From this paper, In the present study, we have provided evidence that complex working memory training can produce transfer effects to executive functions. Indeed, Dual end back training aficionados frequently report gains in self control and ability to focus on mission critical tasks while ignoring distractions. High IQ Pro is the highest rated dual end back training software on the market for Windows, Mac, and Android devices. High IQ Pro also makes the Old guarantee that 20 sessions of 20 minutes each will result in measurable gains. Of at least 15 to 20 IQ points, in addition to improvements in working memory. You can find High IQ Pro on the homepage of limitlessmindset.com. Also, if you'd like to download a free demo of the dual end back task software, just join the limitless mindset community on our website and you can get access to that immediately. Here's a cool self control. Here's a cool biohack for self-control that anyone with extensive martial arts training is probably going to be familiar with. Switch hands. Dr. Thomas Denson of the University of New South Wales conducted a study which demonstrated that switching to your non-dominant hand helps you build control over the emotions of anger and aggression practice moving your mouse to the other side of your computer for fifteen minutes a day stirring your tea with your non-dominant hand or focusing on your non-dominant side while exercising or doing sports reruns of TV shows and self-control this one was super interesting two studies conducted by social, psychological, and personality science found that television reruns actually restore willpower, whereas watching a brand new episode or a nightly news program depletes willpower. I, I assume the same holds true for watching your favorite movie repeatedly versus watching a brand new movie. I would imagine the reason for this is that watching brand new content forces your mind to try to wrap itself around what's going on and you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next in the show. Whereas if you already know what's going to happen, then your mind kind of gets the opportunity to recharge itself. Let's talk about liquid boosters of willpower. So, reasonable doses of caffeine from black coffee or tea. I prefer caffeine rich green tea. Chocolate, organic raw chocolate being my current favorite. Que delicioso not Reese's also contains caffeine which is a neurotransmitter precursor which will make you feel happier and the antioxidants in it will fight stress 5 steps to a self-control mindset first avoid triggers second Realize that your brain is tricking you. You aren't actually going to enjoy this activity. It's just that there may be an unpredictable reward from it that is turning on your brain. Third, demoralize the activity. Look at it in shades of gray, not black and white. Fourth, compartmentalize the activity for a future moment where you will be an ethical hedonist, and finally, go eat a snack or drink some coffee or some green tea. Yeah, cash money, heroes, private jets. polish. To connect with the limitless mindset community, along with a chance to win free neurotrophic brain supplements and other awesome prizes, please give our Facebook page a like at facebook.com backslash limitless mindset. If you found this podcast to be informative and entertaining, please give us a five star review in iTunes or whatever podcast directory you are listening and write us a review letting us know what you think of the show. And remember that the best compliment we can ever hope to receive is you sharing the show with a friend. Today, I'm lucky to be joined by Dr. Kelly Goldsmith. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) I'm pretty good for the circumstances. I tried to find the quietest little corner of Nicaragua that I could to... Record this podcast, but we still might get some some chickens in the background, or some kids <laughs> playing, or some some loud motorcycles. But uh, it's a pretty exciting country. I recommend it.
1: That's great. I'll check it out. So today
0: we're doing this episode on the subject of self control and willpower, and I'm trying to find the connections between. Kind of like some of the philosophical ideas on willpower and some of the actual like biological science and things that have been tested on the subject of willpower. And so uh-huh. as I was, as I've been Googling these things, I keep running across your name and I keep running across the study that you did with the chocolate and with guilt. And so I feel really lucky that I was able to catch you on the phone here before you were uh, jetting off tomorrow, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Go to Miami tomorrow.
0: Oh, okay, cool. So I like to start my interviews by asking my guests to share something interesting about themselves.
1: That's easy. Um, Well, number one, I I generally think I'm a pretty interesting kid, but the most interesting thing or differentiating thing about me as a faculty member, which most faculty members here at the Kellogg School of Management and otherwise can't say, is I was actually a contestant on a major American TV show, the show Survivor. So I was a castaway on Survivor with a torch and got voted on off and lived in the desert and got starved and all that good stuff so that that is something that's interesting about me is despite my uh my professorial inclinations nowadays in a prior life I was a reality tv contestant
0: wow that's pretty rad so if I do some youtube searching of your name I might be able to find a cool clip of you like you know building a bridge over a volcano or something like that
1: the, my favorite one you can find, it's me drinking like a huge cup of blood. Uh, that was our kind of gross food challenge. Not Obviously not human blood, it was cow blood, but uh, we were on Survivor Africa and there's a custom in the part of Africa we were in where um, people would drink cow's blood. And so that was a challenge that they gave us in the second episode was we had to drink, drink blood. And uh anyway, needless to say, I ended up losing the challenge for my team. I was not a great blood chugger. But you can find it. That's uh, Yeah, if you Google me, that's one of the first things that comes up. Wow,
0: okay. So in, so my, my, looking at the subject of self-control and willpower, it kinda seems like Mm -hmm. people in general are pretty terrible at self-control and willpower.
1: Oh, I think that's a little bit unfair, right? At the end of the day, uh, there's a guy here at Northwestern named Brian Sternthal who's done some amazing work on self-control and self-regulation and depletion and the choices people make. And I think he has this positioning, which I'm inclined to agree with, which is that, you know, the organism is smart, right? we bumble through life. We've made it a long way from our days as apes living in caves. Like, if you think of, like, human Kind has of been able to do it's actually kind of amazing, right? So, you know, can we resist every chocolate bar? No, right? Can we can we always do our you know our work instead of watching our favorite TV program? No, but we move forward, right? We're not completely terrible. So, I think I think there's a lot of hope actually in terms of people's willpower. Of course, could we be better? Sure, and that's one of the things I study in my research. But uh, but I have very in people's ability to exert willpower and and develop our understanding of exactly what and how they can best do that
0: yeah, I would say I share your optimism for the you know the future of the human race and in exercising willpower and in accomplishing more cool things the the takeaway that I got from your study, which was uh, when when guilt begets pleasure, the positive effect of a negative emotion, and we'll have that linked in the mm-hmm. show notes for our listeners, kind of the takeaway that I got from that was that when there's the emotion of guilt associated with a particular activity, with a particular habit, that activity, even though guilt is kind of a negative, it, it gets categorized as a negative emotion, that particular activity mm-hmm. We're way more motivated to go and do that thing if it makes us feel naughty to do it, which is uh, which is which is a little bit crazy to me. But it, it really does kind of make sense if you if you look at you know I think pretty much anyone's life experience in context of what your guys findings were.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What actually got the research started was we were speaking with people. uh, This was when I was a graduate student at Yale. We were talking to people just in general about their experiences with self-control, and one of the things that we heard from a few people was this, this, this feeling that food, sort of naughty, indulgent food, just tastes better when you're on a diet. And that got us thinking, well, why would that be the case, right? Is it possible that food actually, thought naughty, indulgent food, kind of tastes better when you should be exerting the most self-control and avoiding it? So we thought about the mechanisms that might underlie that effect, and uh, we thought about guilt, right? So we turned to the notion of guilt and pleasure. And because guilt and pleasure are cognitively, well, because they're associated just in this Um, In the marketplace, we see tons of advertisements emphasizing the link between guilt and pleasure, between sin and indulgence and things like that. So they're they're emphasized externally, but they also can be emphasized internally. So, for example, if I eat an entire shot of cake, I may experience pleasure because I enjoy the cake, but I may also experience guilt. So what we started thinking was, you know, and if you understand emotions and their associated cognitions, one thing you know is that emotions such as guilt or any other emotion can become linked to associated cognitions if you have what we call repeated co-activation. And that would be when you experience guilt, you also experience pleasure repeatedly throughout your life. Or if, for example, when you see advertisements that talk about guilt, they also implicitly talk about pleasure. That's a sort of external reinforcement. So this link between guilt and pleasure can be... Uh, demonstrated both internally and externally. And if this is something that's especially true in Western cultures, you see that people emphasize this link between guilt and pleasure externally. So that got us thinking, well, if people are trained over time to cognitively associate guilt and pleasure together, it might be possible that by activating the concept of guilt or by making people feel guilty, they'd have this expectation for greater pleasure, sort of, if I feel guilty doing it, it must be really great. Um, and so that's what we were looking to test in the lab. And we thought that, again, tied back to this notion of why maybe these indulgent foods tasted better when you're on a diet. If I feel guilty eating it, it must be really great. Right? And then that affects the subjective taste perception. So that that's what we were interested in exploring in the studies. It wasn't so much about people's choices. It was really about how you're exp- experience of consuming that cake or your experience of doing something naughty like looking at online dating profiles, how you experience that when the concept of guilt is activated, so when you're feeling guilty versus when you're not, so a control condition where we're not activating that concept. And in fact, what we found specifically was that uh, across lots of common contexts, lots of common indulgences or common everyday sort of vices, by making people just feel a little bit naughty doing it, making them feel a little bit guilty, they in fact, it heightened their pleasure in line with our intuitions, about this link between guilt and pleasurable outcomes.
0: So this guilt-pleasure link is not really, it's not like an evolutionary psychology link. It's something that we have to thank because of the, the Edward Bernayses of the world and because of this this marketing machine that we all pretty much live in 24-7.
1: I would agree with that. I mean, I think if you take it back, when you think from an evolutionary perspective, right, I'm always envisioning us as cavemen uh, living in the wilderness. You're a caveman living in the wilderness. You don't feel guilty about what do you have to feel guilty about? You're just trying to survive, right? You don't feel guilty about the sex partners you choose. You don't feel guilty about what you choose to eat. You're just trying to make it through the day and procreate and keep the species going. So guilt is really something that evolved much later on when humans are much more sophisticated. Um, and, of course, there's tie-ins to religion um, and the origins of guilt, which are beyond my, the scope of my research. But I do think that guilt is something that's not... It's not so much evolutionary. It's something that we... Uh, it's a construct that we developed basically to keep ourselves in line and to prevent people from engaging in bad behaviors. And it's a construct that we've reinforced, like you say, with the marketing machine. But also, we've trained ourselves to feel guilty, right? We, when we violate our goals, we now feel guilty. We experience that emotion of guilt doing it, not because we're innately wired to experience this emotion of guilt, but because we're trained to associate guilt with goal violations or guilt with sinful indiscretions.
0: And you know, you, your study was really kind of like a paradigm shift and mindset for me. Cause I've always kind of, I was kind of have thought about willpower and self control in almost, I would say kind of like a traditional, like religious kind of sense that mm-hmm. willpower was more about, you know, having principles of being a good person and about aspiring to be this virtuous individual. But based upon, based upon your, your article, it, it looks like we should look at life and look at our habits more in like shades of gray as opposed to looking at things in a black and white context because the things that are on that black side of the line, the things that are the forbidden fruit are going to be that much more difficult for us to say no to in, uh-huh. you know, in the moment when it really
1: counts. Right, I absolutely agree. And across other research I've done, what we find, right, is sometimes what seems black is white, sometimes what seems white is black. A virtue in one context can be a vice in another. It can depend on the type of decision you're making. It can depend on their mindset. It can depend on a lot of different things. And this is something that we see a lot in consumer behavior. So I do think that, I mean, mean, you know, I study how to increase pleasure from hedonic consumption. That's really the takeaway from the paper is can guilt be used to increase pleasure? And I've had people give me some pushback and say, well, do we really want to increase pleasure from hedonic consumption? Do we, you know, that could drive people to eat more. That could drive people, you know, engage in these salacious activities. And isn't that something we want to prevent? And I argue there is nothing wrong with human beings experiencing pleasure, Like right? There's nothing intrinsically, this is something we're, that is something we're hardwired to do when we're lucky enough to be hardwired to do it. Now, should we push it to the extent that we're eating, you know, cake after cake after cake? Are there boundary conditions for how much indulgence is good of course there are. But a little bit of indulgence and maximizing your pleasure from a little bit of indulgence, I think it's fine. In fact, I think it's healthy. So I think we need, like you say, it's it's really a shades of gray question. It's not so much black or white when it comes to indulgence. And a little bit of indulgence, I think, can actually be very good.
0: Okay, so here's a big question for you then. Is there a way that we can reverse engineer our guilt triggers so that we can use guilt to motivate us to do the things that we usually don't do? Like, like, is there a way I could like create a uh, hypnotic tape that I listen to at night that makes me feel guilty about going to the gym or eating healthy food or doing my dual end back training every day? Different things that <laughs> that require motivation. Is there is there a way I can make myself feel guilty about that, and it would work the same way as say you know having a cocktail or, you know, doing something that is is categorized as as naughty or 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 something that would be guilty in the traditional sense?
1: I have to say, you know, my research really doesn't look at the there is plenty of research that looks at the motivational properties of guilt. My research looks more directly at guilt and this sort of experiential component of how you experience pleasure, which isn't directly related to the motivational properties of guilt. So just because you like chocolate cake more when it's in your mouth when you're eating it doesn't necessarily mean that feeling guilty is going to lead you to Wrap all the chocolate cake around you. And in fact, there's other research suggesting that there's instances in which guilt, feelings of guilt can increase your self-control. It can actually make you less likely to choose indulgent options and more likely to choose practical things. But those are implications for acquisition or for choice. And what I talk about specifically is this experience of hedonic consumption. So conditional on your having chosen it or conditional on your having to eat it, in this case we're talking about a cake or looking at common dating profiles or watching kind of Um, salacious videos, we find that in those contexts, guilt does heighten their pleasure, but we don't actually speak to the motivational properties of guilt. That said, one thing we have talked about, because we find um, these effects of guilt only happen for what we call hedonic activities, and those are our pleasurable, sort of indulgent activities. So we started thinking, all right, well, to your point, right, could we enjoy utilitarian activities, like practical activities, vacuuming the floor, taking up the trash, could we enjoy these activities more if we found a way to sort of reprogram ourselves and associate them with guilt. And I have some related research that looks into this. And what it suggests, for example, if you buy a really expensive vacuum cleaner, so you buy the most expensive vacuum cleaner on the market, and you feel guilty because you didn't need to bend.
0: The one that creates a little, like, miniature black hole in it to power it?
1: Exactly, the one powered by the black hole. Um, <laughs> we find that when people use those black hole-powered vacuum cleaners or use these products that now, even though they're very practical, they're so, you, there's a guilt associated, so guilty for spending $600,000 on a vacuum, right? When people use these products, they actually do get a little bit of that sinful boost because it reminds them of their overspending and discretion and they, they get the same sort of pleasure. Uh, we find it also with Vitamix blenders, the $600 blender. People feel indulgent when they use it as opposed to just practical. So, I mean, is this, I don't know, and from a normative perspective, I don't know if I'm making a great recommendation which is basically telling you to spend way too much money on practical products, but if you want to <laughs> associate that guilty, sinful sensation with more um, Practical utilitarian activities, that is' one way you can do it
0: <laughs> so that would be so maybe a good example of that would be going out and getting like the most premium high end gym membership that you can exactly. find in your city, and then you're gonna feel like a baller because you have it, and you're gonna feel a little bit guilty about it because it's you know eating up your 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 credit card uh, mm-hmm. your credit card budget every month, and so you'll right. maybe be a little bit more motivated to go and hit the gym. It would there you go, and you might enjoy
1: it more when you're there.
0: Of that. Okay, I've got a, a final question for you here. Something I'm trying to figure out is, is there a difference in self-control between kind of what I describe as, like, consumption self-control and self-control over, over like, social situations and how you act in social situations?
1: That's an interesting question. So what's an example of how you would exert self-control in a social situation?
0: Okay, I can give you a really great example of this. So, like, for example, what I find is that when I'm, like, living abroad, I'll be working on my laptop on all these different Internet projects that I have, and if some new friend that I make comes up and invites me to go out with them to go to the beach or to go out to get dinner or to go to a discotheque or something like that, No matter how much work I have to do, I can almost, it's almost impossible for me to say no to that person. So that's kind of like an example of my lack of social self control. However, I'll find that like, uh, like the other week I was on, I was at a rave on the beach in Costa Rica and, uh, I think a French girl offered me some cocaine and I was like, no, thanks, you know, it's not very healthy, I prefer not. And so, I see that when it comes to social stuff, I have, like, it seems like almost zero self-control, but when it comes to consumption habits like alcohol, cigarettes, things like that, Mm -hmm. I have pretty excellent self-control. So I'm wondering why there's such a disparity between those two things, and if that's a a common experience with, with any of the other research projects you've done.
1: I mean, I think that there's, there's a lot to unpack with your example. So, for example, I mean, I can just speak from my own personal life. Also, when I uh, you know when I went to grad school, I lived, I lived in New Haven, Connecticut. I went to Yale. Very sort of nerdy town. Really not a lot of fun things to do, not to throw New Haven under the brush, but it's true. So, you know, I'm living in New Haven, not having a great time. I moved to Chicago, and I had a lot of trouble exerting what you would call social self-control. Anybody who wanted to go out to lunch, anybody who wanted to go out to dinner, anybody who wanted to go out to drinks, I couldn't say no. And it was because all those years of relative social deprivation or social isolation, I felt like I was justified. I had no problem saying yes, I was, I, I had earned it, right? I'd really suffered through grad school and just done work all the time, so I'd earned the right to have a lot of social fun, right? Whereas with things like alcohol consumption, drug consumption, this illicit consumption, there's two things going on. One... These are different, it's almost like different accounts you're drawing from. So your social account, you, you may feel like, or at least I felt like, my social account had been depleted. I hadn't really done anything cool socially. So when I got to Chicago, I'd earned the right to do that, to sort of balance it out. Whereas, you know, my, let's take alcohol, for example. I drank the same, you know, in New Haven that I drank in Chicago. So I didn't feel like I'd earned the right to booze anymore, right? So there's this sort of idea that you may have different accounts for different types of behaviors and that one account may have a different sort of balance than another account. So just because you exert different amounts of self-control could have something to do with that. Another thing to keep in mind is also, you know, it's all about what you can justify, right? And drug use, alcohol use, cigarette smoking, it depends on your idiosyncratic preferences and the way you want to live your life. But a lot of times people have rules that they'll impose. You know, I'm the type of person who I drink, but I don't smoke pot. You know, I don't cheat on my girlfriend, but I do cocaine. I don't know. People have rules they impose for how they live their life. And once you've imposed a rule, it really increases the cost of violating that rule. So I think, especially for these types of illicit consumption, it is an area of life where people have these rules that they create these very zero one standards. And I I think this research would, the way I interpret the research on rules is rules can actually be very effective at driving behavior more so than you know it's okay for me to drink three nights a week, but um, it's I'll put this aside. Right. It's easier to never drink than it is to drink one drink and then stop. Right. Yeah, so if you have a rule that says, yeah, I never drink, you're actually doing yourself a favor. So all those things come into play uh, in terms of like, the consumption of illicit substances, the way people make their decisions. But exerting, having, you know, you may be the type of person, you can think about it, not just social self-control, but there's people who every day get up and go to the gym at 6 in the morning no matter what. So they have incredible self-control about going to the gym, but however, the rest of their life is a complete mess. The rest of their relationships are bad, they lie, they cheat, et cetera. You know, everyone has different standards for themselves, and everyone has different goals. And that may very well vary across different components of your life for a lot of reasons.
0: Cool. Well, Dr. Goldsmith, that covers about the scope of the stuff I wanted to chat with you um, in this interview. So I I appreciate your time a whole lot here. Was there, uh, is there any other links or interesting uh, articles you've been working on recently that you might want uh, to direct our listeners to?
1: Uh, I think everything I'm working on is interesting, personally. If you would like to learn more about my research, uh, my Northwestern website is always up and running, and you can download papers from there. Uh, Even just working papers that aren't published yet, also all my published papers. So, uh, yeah, anyone who's interested can follow up. I do lots of kinds of stuff, all of which I think is pretty cool. So hopefully some people will be... Legal
0: notices. If you or someone you know developed or created a concept, piece of content, or idea shared on this show, please email us at info at limitlessmindset.com so we can mention them in the show notes or provide a backlink. We want to give credit where credit is due. As a listener to the Limitless Mindset podcast, we hope you have and practice common sense. However, since some of the content covered in this show deals with subjects of a health, legal, or business nature, this show is for entertainment purposes. If you need recommendations of doctors, nutritionists, or attorneys to consult before making decisions that may have health or legal repercussions, please email us at info at LimitlessMindset.com.